Chapter 15 A Dance of Many, Part 2 Were there moments during the time of the dark when the course of events could have been reversed? Moments where one individual saying, I will or I will not, could have altered the slow, inevitable slide into ignorance, cold, and oblivion? I like to think not, but maybe I'm being charitable to those trapped within that time. The choices that the men and women of that age made, like those of today, were based upon their survival and their own well-being. Each had to account for their actions to their superiors and to themselves. Each had to choose the best course for themselves and those they valued. But whatever their choices were, the ice was waiting. Arkal, Argivian scholar. Before Sima, in the gathering dusk, the citadel rose along the shoulder of the mountain. Those mountains and the extensive swamps at their base had forced a wide detour to the west and she at last had to approach along the seacoast itself. The citadel of the conclave looked like a city from this angle, a city turned on its side and stacked vertically. Buildings, actual wings of the same great castle, were stacked one atop the other and ringed with wide parapets that served as roadways threaded through the mass of stone and mortar. The battlements were limbed by a red dish glow from innumerable torches, or, given the nature of the place, bits of red mana. To Sima, it was the dark castle, the most dangerous place in the world. Here was where the wild mages made their lair, the ones too dangerous, too arrogant, and too chaotic to ever be part of the City of Shadows. Their power was great, good enough that the other members of the Shadow Council would not allow members to visit, much less communicate. It was a tainted place, and known as such for the earliest surviving records. Drafna himself wrote of this place when it was the Monastery of Gix, and he told of the treachery that broke the original Council of the Ivory Towers. Sima suppressed a shudder. Joda was somewhere inside there, if he was still alive. She had heard of the barbarities of their challenges and their violent ways. They were not scholars, but violent children, who thought of themselves as the true rulers of magical power and so ignored the rest of the world. They were magic run wild, a violation of the calm, reasoned research of the Shadow Council. She fished out the mirror from within the folds of her blouse. In the growing shadows of the darkening beach, it glowed with a bluish tint all on its own. She turned it slowly toward the great vault citadel. The bluish glow grew stronger. He was still alive, and she would go rescue him. She tucked the mirror securely in her shirt, hefted her walking stick and pack, and began the long trudge up the side of the mountain to the main gate. It would be nearly dawn before she arrived. As she walked, four figures watched Sima from the swamp. Tracker, Preacher, Miracle Worker, and the Primata. She is here, said the Primata Delphine. As I foretold, said Betchy, the miracle worker, gazing through sightless eyes. Let us take her now, said the preacher, a lean, narrow-jawed man with wavy brown hair. Let us purge her soul before she joins with the others of her foul fellowship. Suffer not the magician to live, says the Book of Tal. The tracker, a dirty, mud-stained man, said nothing. No, said the Primata. Let her be unaware until we drop the hammer of Tal upon her. To the mudstained man, she said, You say this is a castle of wizards? The tracker nodded. For the past few weeks, he had followed Sima and brought the other three here by secret ways. Though every mile, he grew quieter and more circumspect. The blind woman, who did not miss a step, troubled him, and the brown-haired man who preached the book of Tal at every chance troubled him even more. The large woman did not merely trouble him, 
She frightened him to the core of his being, and so he merely nodded. The primata loomed over him, and the tracker felt he needed to aid a bit more of his respect. A bad place, they say, filled with sorcerers and wizards. Best to stay clear, if you ask me. We should take the place ourselves, said the preacher. The four of us, said the primata, sarcasm dripping in her voice. Shall we storm the battlements, or merely pull the castle apart with our teeth? The Book of Tao says, the righteous shall have the strength of seven, said the preacher. Then we will be outnumbered only ten to one, said the primata. To the tracker, she said, Is there a village nearby? The tracker nodded and said, Up the coast, a couple good-sized towns. How do they feel about sorcerers? asked the primata. Can't stand them, said the tracker, choosing his words carefully. But they respect them. Every now and then, one gets loose and carves through the area with his magic. They're afraid of him, because they can't stand up to him. The power of Tao is greater than any magic, said the preacher. Indeed, said the primata. Is there a church of Tao there? The tracker nodded and added, Small one, but influential. Tends to keep its nose clean around the wizards. We'll see about that, said the primata. Come now. We shall go to this town for aid. The three started northward, but the mudspatter man held back. The primata looked at the tracker. The tracker, for his part, bowed low and said, No offense, ma'am, but you hire me to bring you here, which I've done. I have no truck with wizards, if that's all the same to you. I'll be heading home. He paused and added, After I get my payment, of course. Of course, said the primata Delphine. She walked up to the tracker. She towered over the smaller man, and he almost backed away from her presence. Gently, she raised her hands and touched the man's temples. Let me bless you first, my child, before you receive your payment. Let us now hear the words of the Book of Tao. The miracle worker did not move, but the preacher gave a wolfish grin and said, Tao knows all. Tao knows all, said the primata. All that is known is known through Tal, said the preacher. Tal knows all, said the primata, joined by Sister Betchy. All not known to Tal is not worth knowing, intoned the preacher. Tal knows all, said the primata, joined by Sister Betchy. That which is not known to Tal should be cleansed, said the preacher, his voice rising. Tal knows all, said the primata, joined by Sister Betchy. Let the cleansing begin, said the preacher. Let the cleansing begin, said the primata. The tracker screamed. It was a short, painful scream that bubbled as it rose from his lungs. He tried to struggle, to break away, but the primata held him in place with her fingertips pressed against its temples as if he were made of iron and held in place with magnets. He twitched, and smoke began to curl from his temples, then from his ears. The tracker gave one last rasping gasp, and perished. The primata removed her fingers, and the corpse collapsed in the soft, marshy ground. The sinner is cleansed, said the primata. Amen, said the preacher. Amen, said the miracle worker. You have been paid in full, said the primata to the corpse. To the others, she said, Come now. We should test the fear of those townfolk as well as their fate. 
She touched the holy writ inside her robes, and she smiled. Even the blind miracle worker turned away from that horrible smile. Jonah crept into his bed, but sleep would not come for him. Instead, it hovered on the borders, taunting him with his failure. Something had gone wrong, but he did not know what. He closed his eyes and willed himself to go to sleep. The uncastable spell had drained him, and the back of his neck felt hot, almost sunburned. He had held the mana too long, and it had taken its toll. He opened his eyes and stared at the ceiling. Marisol was obviously angry. Was it his fault? Jonah wondered. Had he been so sure that the spell would work, that he had raised Marisol's expectations? Had the Lord High Mage already gone down the same path with the same result? Was he hoping Jodah would find the way to make the spell work? Jodah closed his eyes again and tried to breathe deeply. Marisol would calm down. He had failed only once. People apparently failed at the Conclave all the time. He thought of Shannon, cracking gears with alarming regularity. But Shannon suffered an accident and was now pulling weeds in the garden in the afternoon and evenings. Jodah opened his eyes again and stared at the ceiling. That was when Jodah realized that he was not alone. He sat up suddenly and the ragged man was there. Jodah had not seen him come into his room and not even felt the breeze of his entry. But now he was there and Jodah knew he was there. Jodah spoke a sharp syllable, stashed an offhand bit of energy into it, and a lamp flickered to life. The ragged man was there, dressed in his tattered cloak, only his long bony fingers bare beneath the wrapping. There was something different, though it took a moment for Jodah to recognize it. The ragged man wore a sword on his belt. It was the same rune-covered blade that Barl had provided Jodah on his first day. Was it there as a threat, wondered Jodah, or a warning, or a message? The Ragged Man could go anywhere in the Citadel and take anything. The Ragged Man beckoned, and Jodah rose from the bed, throwing on a shirt and pants, almost as an afterthought. The Tattered Man creature opened the door and glided almost effortless out of the hall, like a ghost. Jodah started to shout out that there might be others nearby, but by that time, he was at the door. There was no one in the hallway. Was the hour so late, or was this some other power of the Ragged Man? Already? The man in the tattered wrapping was moving down the hallway, away from the staircase. Jodah followed. What do you want this time? hissed Jodah as he caught up to the tall figure. The ragged man turned to him and raised a finger to his shrouded lips. Jodah cursed softly and followed. Jodah's guide took him to a dead end passage, or what Jodah thought to be a dead end. The passage ended in a huge alcove, dominated by a great stained glass window, showing Marisol heroically triumphing over a band of goblin raiders. To the best of Jodah's memory, he had never seen anyone in this alcove, despite benches set beneath the stained glass. The ragged man turned toward the wall on the left side of the alcove and touched a stone. The stone was part of the wall and should not have moved, but it did move, and the wall swung inward at the ragged creature's touch. The ragged man drew his weapon, and Jodah stepped back, his mind automatically going for the memories of the land, just in case. But the ragged creature held the sword before him, and the runes burst into crackling light. The sword glowed blue, and the ragged man plunged into the darkness. Jodah followed him into the dark. He summoned a small light of his own, a white sphere in his palm that cast sharp shadows on the surrounding walls. They were at the top of a narrow staircase, barely wider than Jodah's shoulder, which plunged downward. The type of stone used in the walls, as well as the mortar and arrangement, changed as they moved downward. The passage would often level off, then change direction and descend again. 
Jota saw no other doors or side passages, but once he caught the smell of salt spray, and another time he felt the floor vibrate for some distant engines. The passage spiraled down through the heart of the citadel. Jota thought of Shannon's story about the white mage mappers and its moral. Marisol and Barl did not allow their domain to be mapped. Jota also remembered Shannon's tale of the fallen, lurking in the depths beneath the citadel. That did not make him feel any more comfortable. The passage narrowed now, and the wall sweated. The air grew close and tight for a moment. Then the ragged man reached a blank wall. He paused for a moment. Then another door swung open into a larger space. Air, laden with dust and ancient smells, wafted over Joda. The ragged man stepped through into that larger space, and Joda followed. The space was akin to a tower. If one could think of a tower as being a tube running into the ground. The ceiling was lost in the darkness above them, and they were perched on the rim of a great pit. It was ten feet from the curving wall to the pit's edge, but it felt narrow, as if the abyss below was tugging at Joda, trying to pull him in. A warm breeze of dusty air wafted up from the depths of that pit. To Joda's right, counterclockwise from a secret opening, a set of stairs spiraled up into the darkness. Before them, a great cage had suspended in the center of the room by silver chains. The cage itself was made of similar silver, almost translucent, so that it looked as if it was made of ice. Joda thought of the torques around the servants' necks and the tracery on the church's manacles. Within the cage was darkness. The darkness shifted and moved, and dirty hands clasped the ornate bars of the cage. A face appeared from the shadows, weathered, thin, and sallow. It was a beard, but it was ragged and matted. The face had eyes, but they were wide and mad. The cage swayed as the prisoner within shifted his position. Joda again thought of the fallen and checked to see if the door was still open to the secret passage. It was. A thin voice issued from the cage. Tell me, it hissed. Which is better, madness or darkness? There was silence for a moment. Then the thin voice cackled and spoke again, clearer this time. Have you brought me something, my ragman? The voice was almost a whisper, but it rebounded from the walls around Joda and pressed against his ears. The ragman bowed slowly and sheathed his sword in his belt. The light went out. Another silence, and this one was oppressive and brooding. Joda looked at the figure in the cage. What? Joda's throat was filled with dust, so he cleared it and started again. What is this? This? said the figure. This is Barl's cage. Yes, that's what it is. Barl is the artificer, said Joda. Who are you? Not Barl, said the figure, and he started laughing. It was a horrible laugh, rising and falling in an erratic rhythm. It slowed, then raised up again, then slowed at last to a chuckle. I want you to know I am still sane. Oh yes, madness has been my sanctuary from the dark. But I am still sane. But it is a near thing indeed. Jutta did not say what he was thinking, but only nodded. The dirty, unshaven face in the darkness tried to exude some type of nobility. It stuck its chin out and moved a dirty hand back through its fouled hair. I am Ith, it said at last. Another long silence. Jutta at last ventured. And who are you, friend Ith? Friend? I am no friend of the wizards here. I am Ith. The founder, the teacher, the lord. I am the master, and no friend of Ith 
has raised his hand against the pretender. Judah took a step backward, toward the door. The ragman did nothing to stop him. The figure in the cage quieted now. I'm sorry, he said, almost sobbing. I don't get many visitors these days. I can see why, thought Joda. But he said, You founded the conclave. I trusted him, said Ith, his voice turning snake-like and venomous. I trusted him, and he betrayed me. He took my work, my castle, my followers, and none lifted a finger to stop him. You are the Lord High... Joda stopped and started again. You are Mersel's teacher. Mersel the usurper, shouted Ith now. The pretender. He is a leech on the body, a mosquito on the flesh. All that he has taken from me. Joda took another step away. I see, he said. No, you don't, said the trap figure. I meant what I said. All his power he drains from me. From this cage of water silver made by his henchmen. He pulls my power from me and uses it to keep the other mages in line, either by bribes or by threats of violence. He maintains his power. He must be destroyed. The voice was screaming now, and Joda wondered if it would attract others. There was a pause as Ith panted in his cage, struggling to take a breath, but there was no sounds of approaching footfalls. Joda thought of Marisol thundering his fist against the table. Yes, the Lord Mage had a temper, and everyone seemed to be afraid of him, but the prisoner's words were confused. A jumble, fueled by rage and madness. A rage that Ith now seemed desperate to control. I trusted him, of course. One always trusts one's people. Taught him what he needed to know. Brought him here. Founded the Conclave. I heard of the City of Shadows, but they were too restrictive. Too old-fashioned in their thinking. Joda said nothing and the voice continued. But he changed. Everything changes. Mountains sink in the sea and become islands. Plants become overgrown and transform into force. Change is the secret, boy. Did you know that? Joda started to say that he didn't, but it did not wait for him. Change is the source of magic. Did you think it's some type of mineral, like gold, that you could pull everything from the ground? Change is what makes the magic. Everything changes, and everything has magic within it. Dynamic systems. Ith was beginning to lose his temper again. And I was a fool, to think that we were invulnerable to change ourselves. There was a laugh, a wet weeping laugh. I trusted him, but the boy I trusted changed. He betrayed me, and locked me here in the darkness, with the things in the pit. You there. Joda stiffened as he realized he was being addressed. Ith snapped a command. Toss a pebble into the pit. Joda paused, then kneeled down and took up a loose stone. He carefully neared the edge of the pit. Toss it in, said Ith. Then listen. Joda did as he was told. The pebble disappeared into the darkness. Joda counted to five, to ten, to twenty. He gave up at thirty. When I came here, I tossed something into the pit. I still haven't heard it hit. And I have good ears. Again the laughter. Then the laughter came up short. And it wheezed. But there are things within the pit, you know. Yes, dark company things that make all sorts of promises. I've been strong. But the pretender leeches at my strength. 
and I wonder. He paused for a moment, then added in a quiet voice. Am I still mad? Are you truly there, boy? Or are you some trick of the mind? Or a taunt of the pretender? His voice rose, and his hands and face began to glow with their own radiance. Answer me. Joda said, I am Joda, good sir Ith. As an afterthought, he added, Don't be afraid. Afraid? shrieked the caged figure. It was grabbing the bars now and swinging back and forth. The pretender should fear. Yes, you should. You're going to set me free, boy, and I will take my revenge. An emaciated arm snaked out from between the bars, clawing at the air. Free me. Free me, and let me destroy him and his followers. Joda took a step backward, then a second. The face and hands were glowing reddish-blue in unearthly shade, and Ith grasped the bars of his cage and shook them. They held without rattling, and the bars themselves began to go white, pulling the energy from him. Ith screamed, and his hair seemed to stand on end. Free me, he bellowed, his voice becoming an almost incoherent barking. Joda turned and ran, back for the door. The ragman, no, the ragman, did nothing to stop him, standing like a stone sentry to one side. The screaming haunted Joda for the first hundred stairs. After a long while, it finally stopped. Down in the pit, within the cage, Lord Ith sobbed and let go of the bars. His hands had been blistered and now felt like hot plates. He tried to remember why he had been screaming, as the darkness pulled at him from below. Then he remembered. A single tear rolled down his grimy face, finally disappearing in his beard. Well, he said to the darkness, that didn't go as well as I hope it did, did it? The ragman said nothing in reply. Barl rapped on the door, and it swung open. Marisol sat in front of the clockwork calendar, made of stone and metal, his hands together, fidgeting with his ruby ring, turning it around his finger. The deep scowl on his face told the story. Your experiment did not go well, said Barl. A statement, not a question. The Lord High Mage let out a long, impatient breath. No, he said. My experiment did not go well. Barl said, Well, it was a first attempt, and he's a relatively inexperienced... He failed, shouted the Lord High Mage. He almost slammed a fist down on the delicate construct in front of him, then paused, slammed the fist in his hand, and stood up. Barl quietly shut the door behind him. He, shouted Marisol, failed. Perhaps he is not what you expect him to be, said Barl calmly. Oh, no. Marisol waved an impatient hand at the artificer. He's of Jarsal's blood. He read the book and understood it. Within a week, he knew as much as I knew in a year. And he is a child. I thought I had him under my control. And he still failed. Patience is a virtue, said Barl. We don't have time for patience, said Marisol. He waved a hand at the clock. The walls between the dimensions are at their thinnest now. We have a few days to make this conjunction. I thought that with the boy, I would no longer need it. But the foolish child has failed. You've worked for many years already, said Barl calmly. There will be time. Marisol stood in the center of the room, his fist balled in rage. I thought we were so close. The boy would open the gate to the Darklands, and I would bargain with the lords of those lands 
to give me that which they gave Urza and Mishra, the ability to walk the plains at will. Your legends are unclear at this point, stated Barl. And why would the lords of these dark lands, whomever they are, give you that power? Because I was powerful enough to come to them, said Marisol. Like respects like. Power respects power. And if it turns out they are offended by your presumption, asked the artificer. The Lord High Mage gave a deep smile. Then I will offer the offending boy, the one who cast the spell as a sacrifice. The smile grew wider still. I might offer them that anyway. A pity, said Barl calmly. But the young man failed. Then, with such rewards available to him. Do not mock me, machine maker, said Marisol. I am not in the mood for jokes. Of course, said Barl. I never mean offense. Perhaps he was not trying, said the Lord High Mage. Or perhaps there is something within preventing him from fully casting the spell. I would cut him open if I knew it would lead me to discover the magic of planeswalking. You have achieved much without surgery, my Lord Mage, said Barl. Whatever achievements the artificer was going to list were lost in the slam of Marisol's palm against the desk. But for every step, there is a greater step beyond, my friend. A boy dreams of being a man. A man dreams of being a mage. A mage dreams of being a planeswalker. Do you wonder what planeswalkers dream of? asked Barl. There was a long moment of silence. Then Marisol asked, Did you come here seeking to cheer me up? No. I came on another matter, said Barl. We had a new supplicant at the gates. One of the Lord High Mage's eyebrows raised. Another? Within the course of a season? Is it getting crowded here? Or is the world darker and colder than even we think? Her coming at this time is most odd, agreed Barl. Color, said Marisol. Blue, replied the artificer. And Marisol shook his head. Barl added, And she has a southeastern accent. City of Shadows? suggested Marisol. She reeks of their manner, said Barl. And of their spellcraft. I thought those scholars knew enough to avoid our haven, said the Lord High Mage. This one has an interesting story, said Barl. About a plague in Ged, about persecution by the church, about a sinking ship, and about finding her way by chance. Marisol sat down and touched his fingers together. Why does that sound familiar? Why indeed, said Barl. It sounds similar to the tale that your younger Joda told when he arrived. Yes, said Marisol. It assuredly does. Friend Joda, your young protege, mentioned a female companion named Seema in his interview, said Barl calmly. Did the supplicant give her name as Seema? asked Marisol. Oddly, said Barl. No. She did not. She gave another name. Marisol closed his eyes, then opened one again to regard the artificer. Did friend Joda mention that his companion Seema was a mage herself? No, said Barl. I double-checked the report. He did not say, but I did not ask him directly. Interesting, said Marisol. Very, very interesting. A pause. Then he added, a spy? She avoided all questions about her training. She told half-truths when pressed. She lies badly and covers her misstatements even worse. 
I mentioned the City of Shadows, and she asked me, wide-eyed, what it was. I told her it was a community of goat herders in the mountains, said Barl. She did not seem pleased with my definition. The smile tugged at the corner of Marisol's mustache, and he stroked it with his thumb and forefinger. Let us assume I want to send in a spy into the City of Shadows. Why would you want... began Barl, but Marisol held up a finger. I said assume, said Marisol. Given a new task, all trace of his anger and disappointment vanished as he focused on the new challenge. Assume I would. What would you say if I presented a plan in which I sent in a young mageling to become an agent in place and sent in a more experienced mage after him, either to discover what he knows or to extract him for the castle? I would say that sounds very familiar, said Barl. Yes, it does, said Marisol. So, assuming that is what we're facing, what would you do? I would kill the more experienced agent at the first chance, said Barl. Do you wish me to do so? Marisol chuckled and shook his head. Hammers, Barl. You're using hammers again. If you kill the more experienced agent, they would send another. And the first mageling would blame you for the death of its colleague as well. And your solution is? said Barl. I think, the Lord High Mage sat at the desk and twisted the ring on his finger, that the better solution is for our mageling Joda to kill our spy Sima, without knowing, of course, at the time that he is doing the deed. Some deception may be required. Some, agreed Barl, in a low tone. Then, our surviving mageling would know that he had no one to turn to on the outside world, continued Marisol. The city would disown him, and he would be ours entirely, to do with as we wished. The Lord High Mage reached out a hand and grasped the air. He would be ours, completely. Barl nodded. A better choice than merely ripping him to shreds, said the artificer. The Lord High Mage leaned back and chuckled to himself. Barl permitted himself a measured smile. In the corner of the room, a small recording scarab rested at the bottom of the third page, it stopped moving several minutes before, and now it lay there, its eyes blinking, waiting for someone to give it a fresh sheet to write upon.